This week on Geeksplain, we're officially closing the doors on Alias Investigations as we review Jessica Jones Season 3. Welcome back to Geeksplain, the podcast for comics, film, TV, and more. You name it, we explain it. I'm your host, Eric Gazzana, and today's episode is all about Jessica Jones Season 3. That's right, the final season of Jessica Jones debuted this past Friday as of this recording, and uh, I watched all of it. I binged the entire thing over the last few days, uh, took a day to really just kind of... Uh, I guess take everything in, take everything in from the character, the arc over the past three seasons, get all my notes down, and I have a full spoiler-filled review for you today. On top of that, we have our normal news segment, as well as this week's weekly review, and this week's comics countdown. All of that and more is coming up, but first, let's kick it off with the news. So that is our new news intro. Let me know what you think of that. I, I kind of like it. It's a little intense. It's a little intense, but I like it. Kind of reminds me of uh, Raimi's Spider-Man. But yeah, so we've got a lot of news today. Um, lots of stuff, actually. And I've started to kind of categorize them, organize them in like film, TV, and comics. And then there's like a miscellaneous. So we'll start off with miscellaneous news. Um couple things I have on the docket for miscellaneous is two actually right here. Uh, first off, we finally have confirmation that Disney's uh, Marvel Land, which is kind of the extension of the uh, California Adventure Park here in California, uh, they have been basically constructing and they're building a Marvel Land to kind of be off of the side of uh, California Adventure as part of the Disneyland Park. And Recently, we've had the opening of essentially Star Wars Land, also called Galaxy's Edge, here in California. It's been a huge hit. People have been, you know, just crazy about it. And it's really great. I myself uh, talked to you guys a couple weeks ago about it, attending a preview for it, and it is fantastic. And if they put that kind of effort into this Marvel Land, we are going to be in good hands. But we got uh, confirmation that Disney's Marvel Land, or whatever they're going to end up calling it, is officially going to open up next summer. So it is a, has an official release of summer 2020. It's a little far away for me, but like I said, if they are putting in the amount of effort that they put into Galaxy's Edge for this, it is going to be fantastic, and I will be the first in line to get in that for sure. Also, in our miscellaneous news, AEW... Uh, All Elite Wrestling, as you know, if you've been listening to this for any length of time, I am a huge wrestling fan. Uh, AEW had its tickets go on sale for its All Out event in September, kind of the sequel to All In from last year. And also the pretty much the debut for AEW, the real thing to kind of kick off their, uh, their TV show, which everyone kind of assumes is going to be starting off uh, this fall. But... 
tickets went on sale. I didn't even try. I knew they were going to sell out. I knew that I was going to be in a waiting lobby just like I was for Double or Nothing and that I wasn't going to get any tickets. But I had no idea how big the demand was going to be for those tickets because they went on sale and they sold out in 15 minutes. Crazy. They sold out that building in 15 minutes from the analytics that I have looked up and read there were right around 135 people at least logged in to uh, get tickets for this over I want to say it was like 15,000 15 to 20,000 seat uh, arena and it is just fantastic I think that's incredible. I'm really excited for them. Everything that they've kind of put out from their YouTube shows to the actual in-ring product with Double or Nothing has been on point. I'm really excited to see what they do. They have two more shows before All Out in September. They have uh, Fighter Fest, which is happening, I believe, this month, this month or next month. Uh, sometime and then the following month whichever that is is going to be uh, fight for the fallen in florida so really excited i love wrestling this is uh a really exciting time to be a wrestling fan with aew just kind of firing on all cylinders getting some of the best talent in the world and we now know that they've got a huge fan base behind them so really excited for them jumping into tv news uh, we got the official confirmation that Young Justice Season 3 will be coming back in July. I believe the release date is July 5th. I could be wrong. But um, it is coming back. We are getting the second half of Young Justice Season 3. And I think it's interesting that if I'm looking at this correctly... Let me make sure. Yeah. Um, Swamp Thing is going to be kind of running concurrently with... Young Justice Season 3. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the DC streaming service has kind of been working on this uh, rolling timeline, this rolling release schedule. So, like, they had Titans, and as soon as Titans ended the very next week, uh, Young Justice kicked up. And then as soon as Young Justice ended the very next week, Doom Patrol kicked up, and so on and so forth, until uh, Swamp Thing. And I don't know if this is because the schedule for Swamp Thing shifted with it being like a shorter season or whatever, but now instead of that, uh, instead of Young Justice really kicking off when uh, Swamp Thing ends, it's going to be rolling out concurrently with the back half of the Swamp Thing season, which again I think is really interesting. I'm not sure if uh, the rumors about... Warner Brothers reevaluating the DC streaming service uh, kind of have a hand in this, but we'll see. I'm really excited for Young Justice to come back. I think season three has been as strong as the previous two seasons, so I'm really interested to see what they do with that. And then also for TV news, Umbrella Academy. So Umbrella Academy, fantastic show on Netflix. If you haven't watched it, check it out. If you were a fan of Doom Patrol, uh, definitely check it out because it is just, it's kooky, it's weird, it's really, really good. If you haven't checked out our episode on Umbrella Academy, you absolutely should do that. Uh, but Season 2 has officially begun production. They've uh, taken photos of the first uh, table read and they've 
made that announcement should be slated i think for release early next year so really excited about that next up in film news jj abrams company bad robot has officially partnered with warner brothers media uh their deal is for what looks to be 500 million dollars and there are already rumors popping up of jj abrams being the guy to kind of helm the dc universe movies going forward uh i wouldn't hate it i like jj abrams i think he's made some fantastic films in the past and he is going to be pretty much wrapping up with uh disney and star wars with uh rise of skywalker this year so his schedule is open and he's worked with matt reeves who's currently on uh in production for his Batman film. So we'll see if that ends up being true. I think J.J. Abrams, if given the right amount of uh, creative freedom, really can make the best of the source material that he has. See uh, 2009 Star Trek. But he also has had some misfires in recent years, so I would be interested to see what he does if he is given free reign over the DC films. Speaking of the Matt Reeves Batman film, there are rumors going all over the place right now, uh, from the plot to the villains involved. Uh, right now, the big rumor that's going on, which has been you know both leaked and then debunked, and then no, maybe there is some truth to this, is uh, Matt Reeves's film might be a very loose adaptation of the comic Batman Dark Victory. Dark Victory was the sequel to Batman The Long Halloween, written by Jeff Loeb with art by Tim Sale. One of the best Batman stories of all time, Long Halloween is. It even influenced Christopher Nolan on his Dark Knight trilogy. So I think if you gotta pull from something, pull from some of the best stories. And I personally really enjoyed Dark Victory. I know people don't really hold it to as high a level as Long Halloween, but I still love the story. I think it's fantastic. And... Dark Victory also introduces Robin, Dick Grayson, to the Batman mythos in that continuity. So all the rumors that we might get Robin in this, uh, I think it's even closer to pointing to that direction. But we might be getting like Kid Robin, Kid Dick Grayson, because if I remember from that story, I, I need to reread it. I haven't read it in a little while. But uh, that story features Dick Grayson being brought into the world and really doesn't get the chance to suit up to be Robin until the very end of the story. So I would be interested in that. Again, I really enjoy Dark Victory as a story. And then when it comes to villains, rumor is that the villains that Matt Reeves is looking at are as follows. Catwoman, the Penguin, the Riddler, and Firefly. So I think that's really interesting. Um... I feel like if he ends up going with Penguin and Catwoman, he runs the risk of, I don't know, of being uh, compared too quickly to Batman Returns, which I don't think he wants to go with, because even though that movie does has had its fans, and it is in no way the worst Batman movie, it is nowhere near the best Batman movie either, and I think there are definite problems with it. So um, I'm hoping that they do the best that they can with this. Matt Reeves seems to really be uh, keyed in on what he wants to do with this project. And he's got a lot on the line with this. Anything that has the bat name on it really does run the risk of having a lot of pressure. So I'm interested to see where they go from that. And finally, in comic book news, uh, we've got a lot. Mostly with uh, DC, because DC had a field just 
across the board uh, news going on. I'll start from uh, my personal least interested for the DC stuff all the way to the most interesting. Least interesting, uh, Black Label announced another Bat book, uh, this time just called Harleen, and it is going to be yet another Harley Quinn origin story. Um, okay, that's fine. Um, I don't... I, f I feel bad because like I'm talking about this like I'm going through my notes from last week and I said the or not last week but uh, the week before and I said the same thing about this as I'm probably going to say now but I feel like Black Label needs to get away from the Bat books and especially away from the Harley Quinn Joker books because this is again going to be another Harley Quinn Joker origin story. We just got the announcement of the Joker Harley Quinn book that I think it was like two or three weeks ago and now they're doing a second book taking the exact same material and just telling a different version of it and I feel like it's it's oversaturation of that story and it's oversaturation of that character and it's oversaturation of that corner of the uh, DC universe I feel like we shouldn't even call these black label books we should just call these bat label books because they're just it's all Batman stories so I'm just I don't care about this book I don't I'm not interested in it I won't be picking it up um, Black Label, I think, really needs to start establishing other characters. Uh, I think Superman Year One that releases this week is going to have a lot to do with that, and it's going to, hopefully, if it's good, be the kind of book that it needs to be to move the focus away from the bat corner. But we'll see. Uh, next up, something that I'm more excited about is... Uh, just slightly though is the legion of superheroes is officially coming back to dc comics they're officially coming back into dc comics continuity for the first time since the new 52 uh i'm really excited about this the legion i love the legion long live the legion um the legion has been resting for far too long i really enjoyed the kind of uh supporting roles they had in Justice League for this versus the Fatal Five, and I think that film got a lot of people's interest peaked back with the Legion, and now with all of the stuff that's been going on in Doomsday Clock and Rebirth, uh, with Saturn Girl and all of the uh, Phantom Girl and the Terrifics, like all of these characters that deserve to shine will hopefully be coming back. I'm really excited. Uh, the only thing that I'm not excited about is it's being written by Bendis. And I, as soon as I saw that, I was like, yeah, Legion. Oh, it's, it's, it's Bendis. Oh, man. So I am, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt, just like I did with his Superman book. And I'm going to read it. I'm going to read it because I love the Legion. I love those characters. But I am really nervous because, once again, Bendis drove me away from the Superman books. And he is apparently going to be reintroducing the Legion in the mainline Superman book. And he will be spinning them off into their own, like, miniseries. Kind of reintroducing the general audience to the Legion into their own ongoing book. So we'll see. I, like I said, I'm cautiously optimistic. Um, 
I'm excited for these characters to come back. I really hope this ends up bringing Monel back in because he's one of my favorite uh, Superman family characters. But the Legion is really exciting. I love that corner of the DC universe jumping into the future, the 31st century. So we'll see. We'll see where that goes. Uh, switching gears from the future to the past, the JSA are coming back. I want to talk about a big super team making a return. The Justice Society of America is officially coming back in the pages of Justice League, written by Scott Snyder. Um, I cannot tell you how excited I am about this. Uh, Doomsday Clock has given us a lot of JSA love, which I am absolutely a fan of, and another reason to put another feather in the hat of the Doomsday Clock, and another reason for me to recommend that story to you. Pick it up. It's amazing. Um, but the... The teases and the hints have been long-standing ever since DC Universe uh, Rebirth number one, where they showed the different ideas of the Justice Society possibly coming back, all the way through the button where Jay Garrick officially made his return for just a brief second, and then into Doomsday Clock where they have been just hammering home the point of all of how important the JSA is to the DC continuity. So I think it's really cool. I love Scott Snyder's writing. I know he's going to do the Justice Society justice. I, I didn't mean that to be a pun. You know that this happens accidentally, so I'm just going to move on. Uh, and he also has teased that there are bigger things in store besides just being supporting characters in the Justice League book. So I'm really excited. I hope this leads into a JSA ongoing. That would be really cool, and I'm really hoping that we get to see more of them. And finally, the most exciting news, I think, for uh, comics, for me at least in the realm of DC, is Wally West. Wally West has had a rough year uh, with Heroes in Crisis basically just whittling away everything good and lovely about him. Um, we are looking at Wally West currently at the lowest point that I think he's ever been in. And... It seems like the DC Universe is now going to uh, kind of pick him back up and see where he goes because a Wally West miniseries has been announced, a solo miniseries has been announced. I'm really excited about it. It's called Flash Forward, which I think is great. We're looking forward. He even said at the end of Heroes in Crisis that uh, he will keep running even in the face of complete despair because he is hope and that is what hope is and this story promises to basically pick up where heroes in crisis left off i'm going to read you the synopsis right now which reads his name is wally west and he was the fastest man alive that is until the multiverse was rewritten without him or his family in it Wally returned and tried to make it work, but the damage was done. Spinning out of the events of Heroes in Crisis, follow the man who called himself Flash on an adventure to find redemption in a cosmos that has fought so hard to destroy him. So I'm really excited about this. Um, we know that Wally has had a, uh, has basically deserved a solo for a very long time ever since his reintroduction in rebirth and i'm glad that we're finally get it even if it is just a six issue mini but hopefully the big uh push for this book and hopefully this book sells really well will 
end up leading into a full ongoing. Uh, the creative team is uh, it's going to be written by Scott Lobdell, which people have been kind of uh, here and there on. Uh, I think he's had hits and misses so far across Rebirth. I thought he did really well with, uh, with Red Hood and the Outlaws during Rebirth, but he also wrote the beginning of the Rick Grayson arc in uh, Nightwing, so we'll see. He's been kind of hit and miss. What I'm really excited, though, is the art, for because it is uh, being done by Brett Booth and Norm Ratmund. Uh, they were the creative team, the artistic creative team behind uh, Titan's Rebirth, and Brett Booth has just been over the moon talking about his love for the character ever since he came back so I believe that he's in very very good hands uh, and one of my most exciting bits of this as well is that the covers are going to be done by Doc Shaner you know my love for Doc Shaner you know my love for his art and the fact that he is going to be on this Wally West book makes me very 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 excited uh, what also makes me excited is uh, what seems to be Scott Lobdell's love for the character I'm really excited to see what he does with it um, he's been very uh like I said, hit and miss, but in one of the interviews that he was giving, and I'm looking for the exact quote here, uh, da, 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 here, uh, he seems to have a handle on what Wally's, uh, I guess what Wally's purpose is with Rebirth, so I'm going to read his quote here. He says, It was stated more than once, in the books and out, that the return of Wally West was about returning hope to the DC Universe. I think by the end of this series, people will see that we're not treating Flashpoint, New 52, Rebirth, and Heroes in Crisis as separate stories with Wally West in them. Rather, we'll see all of these turning points have been about telling one epic Wally West story. With Flash Forward, I'm using all of the breadcrumbs Wally has left behind over the last nine years to tell a story that ties up some threads and starts weaving new ones. So I'm really excited about this. This sounds like he has a good idea for where Wally is going. I also like the idea that the last time we really saw Wally West before Rebirth, he was the mainline Flash. He had a family. He had kids. He had grown into probably the most successful legacy character in DC Comics. And then the New 52 happened, or Flashpoint happened first, and he was just off the map. New 52 happened still off the map. People thought that the Wallace West that was brought in was basically to replace him. And then he returned in Rebirth, and everyone was like, Hooray! Wally West is back, myself included. Hooray! Wally West is here! And then Heroes in Crisis came, and we were like, Oh, no! Oh, what are they doing? Look how they massacred my boy! Like, it was, uh, it was very sad. It was very sad. But I knew that how it ended they had to have a plan for him they couldn't just leave him in prison and tom king said as much with the conclusion of the book saying that now he is positioned in a important place hopefully back to being the center of the dc universe and hopefully that's what this is uh in the cover for this book you do see the silhouette of a face um, I have been told that this is the face of some kind of celestial being from the Dark Multiverse from the book uh, Sideways. I haven't read Sideways, so if you have read Sideways and you have more information about this, please let me know. But I'm interested. Uh, it looks like he's going to be traversing the multiverse, whether it's the Light Multiverse, our Multiverse, or the Dark Multiverse that was introduced during Dark Knight's Metal. Uh, either way,
way, I'm really excited to see where he goes. He is in probably the most interesting place that he has ever been, uh, and the lowest place in his entire uh, history of this character. So I'm really excited about this. This is huge news, and I will be there to pick up the book as soon as it drops on September 18th, 2019. And then finally, in uh, Marvel news when it comes to comics, there's been something really interesting going on on their Twitter. If you, ha if you don't follow Marvel Comics on Twitter, or Marvel Entertainment, I guess it is, uh, they, have a, they have an interesting thing going on. They had first posted up a picture of the number four, but it wasn't just a regular four. It was a four that was covered, that was basically made out of spider webs. So a lot of people at first were like, holy shit, this is going to be uh, Spider-Man 4 with the Tobey Maguire version, but in comic form. It's going to be an adaptation of that story. Um, I was never really expecting that. I was never really thinking that that was going to be the deal. Um, a lot of people also thought, oh, maybe this is going to be a Fantastic Four uh, crossover with Spider-Man. Like, maybe Spider-Man Far From Home, aside from... Uh, taking us into the next era of the MCU, aside from establishing a multiverse, aside from positioning Spider-Man as the kind of leading the charge for our next era when it comes to the MCU, is also going to be introducing the Fantastic Four into the MCU. Uh, all of these rumors were going on, and a lot of people were like, this is going to be a huge thing. And then the next day came, and it suddenly said, three. Uh, Marvel Entertainment posted up the exact same kind of image, uh, web number and all, except this time it was a three. So that was on uh, Monday. And then on Tuesday, they released another image with the number two. So it is counting down to something, something spider-related. We don't know exactly what it is, but every single number as it comes out has more webs attached to it. So I'm wondering if it's going to be some kind of um, bringing in a new team of spider people, whether this is going to be the uh, announcement of a big event, whether we're going to get another Spider-Verse event. Um, I'm not sure, but by the time that this episode drops, uh, I'm sure it'll be just one more day, and then uh, probably on Thursday it'll announce and we'll talk about it next week in the news but that is it for all of the news in uh comic books film tv and more so we are going to now jump on over to the main course of this episode the entree if you will which is a full spoiler filled this is your spoiler warning spoiler filled review of jessica jones season three You know, sometimes you forget just how good that intro theme is. Like I, I kicked up the first uh, the first episode of this season, and I just I was blown away because I forgot how cool that theme is, and the Jessica Jones intro theme, and all of that, and how good really 
all of the intro themes for the Defenders were. But I think Jessica Jones's is different just for the idea that it's so uh, different from the others. It is so noir detective inspired that it really uses a whole different uh, set of instruments and it makes it feel like a really different show. But this is your spoiler-filled review for Jessica Jones Season 3. I will repeat, this is a spoiler-filled review. If you haven't watched the show, uh, pause this, go watch it, come back, and we'll discuss. Or, if you just don't care about spoilers and you just want to hear about, you know, basically what happened, welcome. Glad to have you. So, this, I think... I can comfortably say this final season, the send-off for the Jessica Jones character, uh, ends on a high note. This whole series really does. And I will say that I think that season three was better than season two. If I had to rank them, I would say season one is the best, then three, then two. This series really did a great job at continuing the arc for Jessica and Friends, and I think it ended on a high note. It ended in a really great place. So I'm going to start things off by talking about uh, Kristen Ritter, because Kristen Ritter is just fantastic. She is unequivocally one of the greatest Marvel castings ever. She just is. She is perfect. She's pitch perfect for this character at all times. I think a lot of people didn't know what to make of the casting when it was first announced, but Ever since that first episode came on with Kristen Ritter as Jessica Jones, uh, audiences just fell in love with her as the character, myself included. She is pitch perfect all the time. She is always in character. She has such. She's so zoned in on who the character is at her core. A really great person who has convinced herself that she is an absolute piece of shit, and. I'm just excited. I'm really excited for her, and I hope that following this she gets more work because Kristen Ritter is a fantastic actress. And she goes all over the map this season. She goes from extreme highs to spending, I would say, most of the season at very extreme lows. She deals with uh, her own insecurities. She deals with the lack of family. She deals with her being in a newly uh, power-aware world where she is in the public domain, she is in the spotlight, and sometimes that's great and sometimes that's not so great. So the season really kicks off with her basically in the middle of a job where she is sent to retrieve this little girl from uh, her dad who has basically taken her and absconded with her to Mexico. And uh, just watching her toss people around is fantastic. Uh, I think it really helps sell the idea that uh, she's super strong by how small Kristen Ritter's frame is. So that when she you know, lifts up large objects, when she's tossing people all over the place, you really get a sense for just how powerful she is. Uh, that doesn't mean that she's invulnerable, though. At the end of the first episode, she gets stabbed. And we've never really seen her injured like that. We've seen her, like, kicked around. We've seen her, you know, go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Luke Cage and basically, you know, almost die. But this was the first time that it really, like, something snuck up on her. She gets stabbed and is left to bleed out in the hallway. She ends up losing her spleen because of it. And uh, I think this is the most vulnerable that we've seen Jess for a long time. Um, 
This might be the most vulnerable that we've seen her in the entire uh, show, with the exception of her interactions with Kilgrave in the first season. So I would say that she does really some of her best work with the character, uh, going through the idea that she is trying to kind of balance the idea of whether she is some hopeless loser or a hero, what that title even means, and really where she fits in the world. Uh, we do see her at the beginning of the season, you know, I think, you know, probably the most successful she's been when it comes to her job, as she has, you know, a commercial, she has a secretary, uh, she's doing well for herself, and she seems to be getting bookings all over the place, but the story quickly shifts gears to her in a more, I would say, uh, vulnerable place, a more... Uh, psychological place because she really has to contend with a lot when it comes to her emotional and her mental well-being um, she is just fantastic she's pitch perfect as this character and I am really sad to see her go uh, I think this really is some of the I think the most compelling work that the DC, or not the DC, the uh, Marvel Netflix shows have ever done when it comes to finding uh, what makes a character tick. And when she makes the choice at the very end of the show to stand her ground and continue doing the work that she needs to be doing, I think is a very powerful moment for her character. Uh, the other all-star, I would say, is Rachel Taylor, who plays Trish Walker, Patsy, Hellcat. Uh, she does some of the best work I think she does the best work she's done throughout the entire show here. Um, I was not a huge fan of hers in the first season. I thought she was fine. In the second season, I could not stand her. I was just, oh my god. I was so over her just as a character. But this season really got me in the mindset of her. It really got us to not just sympathize but also to kind of see where she's coming from and in certain respects absolutely look at things her way so i really like that we also see her using her abilities the uh the second episode is i think a highlight for the entire season where it shows trish kind of coming to terms with her killing jessica's mom at the end of last season and also realizing that these abilities aren't the same as jessica's but they in the ways that they are different she can be not just uh a tool for jessica's war on crime as she sees it but also as her own kind of power set her own specialties we see her doing parkour training training in combat the whole deal so i really liked what they did with her we even got to see her in her uh in her hellcat costume from the comics which of course she throws aside because it looks ridiculous and she kind of settles on a more street urban look which is fine and in this world of the marvel netflix where it's very more uh very, much more gritty and quote-unquote realistic that's fine but uh i i liked how they saw they really took the escalation of that character uh just every single episode she gets just gets driven more and more and more down into her darkest self and it just shows in all the murders that she commits throughout the season whether accidental or not uh, though I will say, personally, loved that she uh, killed 
uh, Salinger at the very end, it was wrong. And the entire time she's saying that, I'm like, no, don't do this. This is, oh, this is the worst. But, of course, secretly, that guy needed to get his head stomped in. And I'm glad that he did. Um, I also like that they really tackled her black and white uh, view of the world, where there are heroes and there are villains. And there's no... Uh, middle ground and even at the very end of the show she doesn't see how she has kind of perverted the idea of her being a hero she just snaps into oh I'm the villain I'm the bad guy now Um, without being able to see that she has certain points that make sense but at the same time she took things too far so I thought she was fantastic and this actually turned my whole view of the Trish character around. So, big applause to her. Uh, I also really liked Eka Darville as Malcolm. Uh, I think he was at his best in the first season where we saw him as this kind of doped up dr- uh, drug addict the entire time. Uh, come to find out that he was being manipulated by Kilgrave from the very beginning. And we've really seen almost a butterfly-like metamorphosis for this character, where he's gone from the lowest to the low to being uh, Hogarth's fixer in her law firm. And he's very good at his job. Too good, as we come to find out, when uh, his detective work really ends up with a man committing suicide. So I thought that he really struggled a lot in the same way that Jessica did with the idea of morality and where his place, uh, what his place is in the world, where he fits among that sliding scale of morality. And I really liked how he was faced with some real world problems. This idea that people see him a certain way that he doesn't see himself and has never seen himself. And that the actions that he takes while under Hogarth's employ really affect him, which I liked. And it really made him have to refocus and start to take certain aspects of his life out even as he was kind of spiraling down and losing control and i think he really kind of came to this realization and this centered self uh sense of self to the point that at the end jessica realizes that he is the person to turn things over to uh he quits hogarth basically telling her that you know i'm not gonna be your errand boy anymore uh, especially after all the dark things that she made him do throughout the season and at the end him kind of taking over alias investigations makes sense because he is just as good at jessica as or at the job maybe more maybe better um and so i know that he is gonna he has a bright future ahead of him for sure someone who does not have a bright uh future ahead of them is jerry hogarth Uh, We really see her at her lowest in this season. Um, I think I liked her character in the first season. I really liked her. I believe the actress's name is Carrie Ann Moss. Uh, Most people knew her best for Trinity from The Matrix. Um, And I did not like where they took her in season two. I felt like they were really... uh, They were trying to add a dimension to the character which didn't make sense in the grand scheme of or at least with the foundation that they set up in the first season. And this season, unfortunately, continued that downward spiral for her character. Um, She made some choices, which I thought were kind of out of character, um, saddling up with Salinger, even with 
the idea that her law firm had to do damage control with their image settling up with a potential serial killer didn't make any sense to me and while she did uh, eventually turn her back on him and stop representing him near the end i thought that it was way too late for that and that she had made a choice that really i think irrevocably damaged the relationships with everyone that she had and of course this reflected in her being basically left alone at the end of the season this idea that she her biggest fear is to die alone and that because of who she is as a person and how manipulative she is uh that is pretty much what we can assume ended up happening she ended up dying from her disease alone because she pushed everyone else away um another a new uh addition to the show was the character of eric gelden also known as mindwave from the comics a super i don't even consider him d-list he's like z-list uh daredevil villain from back in the comics back in like the 70s and uh he was kind of represented here as more of i would honestly i would say a mutant where he just has this ability um he basically can or is affected by the morality of people that he's around so if someone is just a complete scumbag awful piece of garbage person um he will get headaches when he's around them and so he uses this to his advantage where he uses his ability to blackmail terrible people basically coming up to them and saying i know what you did uh pay me so not even knowing what they did but knowing that they're terrible people so i liked his character i liked how he was he seemed very much to me like a character that a young nathan fillion would play uh once again just like jessica kind of a sliding scale of morality um he's not a great person but he knows it and his journey across the season was really great too i really liked how he changed from being almost he almost he had a han solo journey he really did and he went from a complete scumbag to somebody who was genuinely trying to do the right thing and i like that that was reflected in the kind of final uh interaction that he has with jessica where he says you know we could be a team we could make this happen and uh jessica you know basically tells him like i like you a lot and i think you're amazing but i don't trust you and instead of taking that as well you know forget you man i'm out of here i try to be a good person forget this he takes a second and he says okay well i'm gonna have to do something about that which lends to the idea that he is going to try to be a better person to to get jessica to trust him so that he can earn her trust and i liked that and even though we're not going to see that journey for them i really like it and i like that they kind of fit together um i also really liked even though he played a despicable villain uh the character of um gregory salinger he was the main antagonist for the show even though i would say that he and uh, trish walker kind of shared that role in the comics he was known as fool killer his base basically he was a serial killer his superpower is his intelligence and he he was basically if you ever watched the show dexter he was dexter it was basically jessica versus dexter in this uh in this season except if dexter was just evil and he didn't go after other serial killers he was just a regular serial killer and he was intelligent he was calculating he was menacing and he was terrifying in that you know suburban dad bod white guy kind of way and i liked how they really took this disarming 
persona that he could put on at any given time and really turned that up and made that something that was terrifying because he could be anywhere and he could really do damage to anyone and his biggest uh i would say the biggest blow that he dealt to jessica and trish was by killing their mother dorothy and i was blown away by that i was blown away by the death of dorothy i knew that something was going to happen in episode eight i had heard that there was a big uh twist in episode eight but the idea that they just killed her off and that and not just like a it wasn't like something that was like a random thing it wasn't just like uh kind of thing that could happen to anyone she was physically tortured and assaulted until she was killed and i just oh man it was awful because i think what this season did was really give us a great uh reason to get on board with Dorothy as a character. I ended up liking Dorothy a lot as a character, even though she's kind of a terrible mom. Um, it just, it was a gut punch for everybody. And I really, really like how they handled that. He was fantastic. Um, he was menacing. He was everything that he needed to be, uh, which kind of brought things back to that psychological horror uh, that the first season really dove deep on. And I liked him as a character. And I was super happy when he was brutally killed in an elevator uh, but overall i really enjoyed the thing that i think this show has always been really strong with and that's the noir style storytelling whether it's the narration that uh, jessica has for each episode that she is the main character of if you notice um the episodes that trish is the main focus of we don't really get that narration which i think is a cool touch um, but the episodes that are featuring uh, Jessica really feature this old school uh, noir narration, which I adore. I adore noir stories and noir storytelling, and I enjoyed that aspect of it, really having that as kind of a, uh, a bookend for each episode and for the entire season, really. I also uh, really enjoyed how it was a noir detective-style driven plot, where it wasn't so much about the physical confrontations because those did happen but jessica's detective skills were really on display for this season which brought us kind of back to focus and really at least for me reminded me why this show stood out from the other defenders shows uh, in the first place and then also finally the soundtrack i talked a little bit about it with the uh, intro theme but all of the soundtracks for every single episode were just fantastic the use of piano the use of uh jazz like it really frames the show as something different and gives it an identity all its own just from the soundtrack um i also really enjoyed detective costa he was kind of a new addition last season but i really enjoyed what they did with him here uh they also i don't remember them mentioning it in the in the second season but in this season it is revealed that uh, he is gay, and that him and his, I don't know if it was his husband or his boyfriend, but they are looking to adopt, and that they were going through that process. But I loved how we got that uh, Jim Gordon-style character, and I thought that even though it was definitely, like, 
an homage to that character that he really made it his own and felt like a different character and i liked how he was still trying to help jessica while still staying within the realm of the law and kind of trying to help out as much as he can within his means i loved when uh, jessica's trying to get information out of him trying to get a list of names and he's in front of another officer and he's like you know you're not going to get this or i'm going to you know I'm going to arrest you. And as they're walking away, uh, he casually just drops the list behind him, which Jessica picks up and then uses. I love little touches like that. Um, I also really enjoyed the, uh, the collision course that Jessica and Trish really have been on since the first season. This series really ended up being about differing ideologies and the idea that Jessica lives in a world almost completely of um, morally gray and Trish doesn't live like that she views things as black and white there's good and there's evil and she is able to rationalize anything that she does by just staying within that mindset and that worldview and Jessica knows that it's more complicated than that and that really shows in all of their interactions and I absolutely love that because you can see people who are raised so differently um, even though they were brought up together they were brought up in the same house they were brought up in the same family who end up being wildly different people just from who they are and at their very cores you could see that even though uh, Jessica and Trish love each other as sisters. They are inherently different people because of their worldview and the way that they react to that worldview. Um, the confrontation between the two of them at the very end, I think, was also really well done. The idea that Trish thinks that her uh, her agility and her speed should be able to outmatch Jessica and Jessica having had her powers almost her entire life and knowing that all she needs to do is put down Trish once to disarm her really well done and I think for a show that is more focused on the human drama on the detective skills on really the um, the chase rather than the actual car crash I think it was really well done and I liked that it didn't end up being some you know huge super fight like she had with uh, Luke Cage in the first season uh, what I really also like is that this uh, this show really put its mind towards the uh, the division between heroism and vengeance. Uh, we've seen it all the time in different characters, how they kind of blur the lines between the two, but we really get to see how Trish is driven by vengeance while Jessica, as much as she doesn't want to be and as much as she says she's not, is driven by a sense of heroism to the point that like I said earlier, at the very end, she decides to lean into the heroism and continue her crusade on being a good person and doing what she can to help save the city that she, you know, lives in and really was molded and shaped by. Uh, outside of this, um, outside of these, I would say, kind of new aspects, what I really liked about this season was that it kind of went back to its roots. It went back to what it what worked about the first season uh the noir storytelling the detective aspect of it the private investigator roles that i think kind of went by the wayside in the second season and also the idea of psychological horror how someone who is so mentally disturbed affects the people around them really was on full display here just like it was in the first season when it came to Kilgrave and his effect on uh jessica just like Kilgrave as well, I thought Salinger was a very uh, mental villain. He really challenged 
uh, Jessica not physically, but in just so many other ways that it made him almost, it seemed, at, at certain points, it seemed like he was impossible to beat, just like Kilgrave seemed in the first season. And uh, once again, I think, I don't know if it's because they knew that the show wasn't going to last or um, because the show was canceled before it dropped, but after they were done filming. Um, I'm not sure if it was because they knew they were getting canceled or whether it was just kind of an homage to the first season but i was surprised that they killed the villain after they um really kind of set him up as somebody who could come back almost a wilson fisk style character um though i guess this kind of completes the trilogy of the main villains of each season being killed in the final episode so or uh, next to final episode, because I believe um, Salinger was killed in the penultimate episode at the very end. But I really liked how it went back to its roots, talking about what made it, again, what I was saying with uh, the soundtrack, the narration, really setting itself apart from the other Defenders shows and making it feel different again, I thought was a great touch. Uh, speaking of back to its roots, what worked about the first season, we got a glimpse of what worked in the first season because Luke Cage made a return in the final episode and I loved it. He showed up in his in his, you know, weird yellow suit which didn't look good, but it's, you know, classic Luke Cage colors and it, you know, confirmed that this takes place after Luke Cage season 2 and we finally get them face to face again after Defenders. There was a lot uh, that was left unsaid after the first season of Jessica Jones. They never touched upon it in Luke Cage season one or two. And then in Defenders, we really didn't re get any time with them. There was a couple, you know, uh, off-the-cuff remarks, and that was it. So I really liked that we got to spend more time with uh, them, even if it was just for one episode, because it's more than... Uh, Jessica's got with him in the past season. So I liked it. I liked that they had talked about how they're different people now from when they first met and that it really made me uh, sad that we're not going to get any more of this. Though I'm glad that these two kind of got to have a final moment because I think the relationship between them was one of the most defining uh, aspects of the Marvel Netflix era. So I liked that we got a send off for them. Um, the thing that I didn't like is that this did kind of lean into this idea of uh, unresolved plot threads and an unresolved universe really because there are all these things that still uh, really aren't answered and won't be answered because this is the end this is it for the defenders when it comes to the Marvel Netflix universe we're never going to get uh, answers for Iron Fist we're never going to see what happens next with uh, Daredevil and Bullseye. We don't know what's going to happen with Luke Cage, the mob boss. And now with uh, Jessica Jones, we're not going to see whether because they do say at the very end of their interaction when they you know when they figure everything out, they'll they'll talk again. And we're never going to see that. We're never going to see that. Um, we're never going to see how Jessica refocuses herself into her new heroic persona. Um, and that sucks. It really sucks. And I, I realize why it's happening because um, Disney Plus is coming out. They're going to be moving properties over there. But I still think that it's a shame that these characters are kind of suffering for something that they have no control over. Uh, however, I will say that for Jessica Jones and for the entirety of the uh, Marvel Netflix universe as a whole, it ended on a high note. 
uh, Jessica having that last moment where she is getting ready to leave. She hands the keys over to uh, Alias Investigations, over to Malcolm, and just is going to board a train and leave to Mexico. Um, made sense for the character. I'm like, she's, you know, she's got nothing left. You know, Trish has been turned over to what looks like the raft. Uh, she's not going anywhere. There's nothing left for her in New York, and she is going to be leaving. And then as she goes up to the ticket counter, she asks for the ticket. And uh, I knew the second that the ticket got slid over, because the ticket was purple, I knew that something was going to happen. And sure enough, as the ticket slides over, the lighting around her changes to purple. And we get David Tennant's Kilgrave just saying one last line. One last, ah, one last goodbye to, uh, to a role that I think people really love about him um basically telling her that yeah you're you're right to be uh afraid you're right to want to run away because that's what you do best and this is something that you're always going to do and this is the role that you're always going to be in so you might as well embrace it and jessica finally finally i think puts closure and puts the pin on the uh the chapter in her life that includes Kilgrave finally gets over him and realizes that she now has, with everything basically being gone from her, she has the ability to start with a blank slate and make her own choices and carve out her own destiny. And she decides to walk away from the counter and stay in New York. And I loved that. Um, it's just a perfect completion of the arc for her character going from uh just drunk private eye who couldn't give a care less about anyone else in the world to someone who is stepping into her destiny as a hero i think is a perfect ending for that character and a perfect ending for the universe because everyone is in a different place than they were at the beginning of this of the universe and now everyone has really kind of stepped into the roles that they were i think meant to have so overall uh in conclusion i thought like i said this season was very strong much stronger than the second season the second season wasn't bad but it just wasn't anywhere as good as the first season and it definitely wasn't as good as this season so that is it if i had to give some arbitrary you know our geek explain arbitrary ratings out of five i would say this was a solid uh three out of five for me i would say um it's a strong season probably one of the best in the entire uh defenders lineup and i think it's something that people are really going to enjoy if you put the time into it and that is going to do it for this uh for this episode so let me know what you thought of this season if you watched it if you didn't watch it um I'm sorry for spoiling all of it, but uh, it's definitely worth your time to check out. Uh, it's 13 episodes, which is unfortunate. Um, there are a couple couple filler episodes, but overall, I would say that the season is very strong. It's very tight, um, and I think storytelling-wise, it does everything that it needs to to complete that story. So let me know what you thought. Let me know what your uh, thoughts are on Jessica Jones, all three seasons. Let me know what your thoughts are on the uh, Defenders, the Marvel Defenders, the Marvel Netflix universe as a whole. And uh, yeah, so I, I, I'm. It's bittersweet because I really enjoy 
uh, these shows, but I know that these characters can't last forever with uh, Disney Plus looming in the background. But I really adore these characters. I really adore these stories, uh, for good or for worse. Um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna miss this corner of the Marvel universe for sure. And, of course, that haunting melody can only mean one thing. It is now time for the Weekly Review. This is the segment of our show where I review something weekly. And right now we are focused on the Swamp Thing show. This is the live-action Swamp Thing show that is currently uh, playing on the DC Universe streaming service and app. I guess I, guess I could say the now-canceled Swamp Thing show that's only going to be one season apparently unless some other network picks it up. Uh, I'm still really bummed about uh, about the cancellation, especially because you see episodes like this that are such good quality. And just the production values, the acting, the whole narrative is so good. And you wonder why it got canceled so early. But not here to talk about that we talked a bit more about that last week so if you haven't checked out uh, our coverage of that that was in our new segment of last week this week we are reviewing the third episode of the swamp thing show entitled he speaks and of course i think that pretty uh plainly tells you what the big uh talking point is ah i didn't mean to do that but that's that's funny. So, um, episode three, I would say, is the weakest so far out of the three episodes, but in no way does it mean that it's bad. It is still a strong, strong show, and it's this episode just kept that rolling. Uh, first of all, I asked, and they delivered. Uh, the opening scene it features Andy Bean. Andy Bean is back as Alec Holland, and he is heavily featured uh, at the very beginning of the episode during a dream sequence where Alec Holland is basically faced with the guy who Swamp Thing pretty like brutally killed last episode by like ripping him like I think I think it's called drawn and quartered like where he had vines on his both of his legs his head both of his arms and he just pulled him apart and uh this guy you know is just haunting him in this dream sequence it's it's very um the way that it was shot and the way that it was uh, kind of conveyed was very Evil Dead. So if you're a fan of uh, Sam Raimi, this would be right up your alley this episode, I think. Um, it's very ethereal. And the guy like comes to him and he's just like, you know, I'm going to come back at you. I'm going to come back at you. And he does because he is his body is basically pulled back together essentially by these maggots. And I have a sneaking suspicion that it is something that, if you are familiar with the Swamp Thing character, is from the comics. But we'll get into that a little bit later. Uh, a lot of stuff happened in this episode. It was a very plot-heavy episode, which is great. They're finding, I think, uh, 
at least in the first few episodes, they're trying to find the balance between everybody's stories. Because what's great about this is that every single person in this show has a story, has a narrative, has an arc. However, and we've seen this, I think the first couple episodes, but this episode especially, um, all of these characters are so well developed and have so much to them that when you're trying to cram everybody's arc into an episode some people fall by the wayside and unfortunately uh this is the case for swamp thing himself we haven't gotten a lot of time with him uh pretty much this is all we get of uh kind of his inner workings in the beginning of this episode and a little bit at the end as well but um, they really focused on the supporting cast in this episode, which I liked. Um, but I would really, I hope that at least next episode we'll get more into Swamp Thing kind of being Swamp Thing and us getting really to look at him as he is. Um, one thing that was really good, though, was uh, the, I would say, not yet a power struggle, but the... Uh, the seeds have been planted for the power struggle between Abby Arcane and Jason Woodrue. They finally meet each other in the uh, in the autopsy room, and it is just so interesting because Jason Woodrue is so just a dick. He's just such a dick, and he's very condescending towards Abby. He keeps calling her Miss, and she keeps correcting him that to call her doctor because she is she's dr abby arcane and you know that this is going to be something that they carry over throughout the uh the episode or throughout the season and i'm really interested to see where that goes uh we also got to see more of liz abby's uh reporter friend and i so here's the thing i normally at least in the past like year or so i've been getting really kind of uh tired of the reporter trope in superhero stories uh we pretty much see it everywhere nowadays and i feel like the oversaturation is pretty high when it comes to reporters in superhero uh media but i feel like i don't know why i liked it so much here maybe it's because this isn't a traditional uh superhero story maybe it's because it is more like a horror genre and uh you're i'm kind of looking at it with fresh eyes but i loved liz just working the beat trying to get information from people tracking leads down the whole thing i really like her character and the end of the episode kind of teased something bad happening to her but i hope that she makes it all the way through the season because she's great all of her interactions are fantastic the actress who plays her is great and i love what they're doing with her and how she's inadvertently uh moving the plot forward with her slowly uncovering uh sunderland's uh secrets like personal loans and his uh money laundering stuff so that's really cool uh, unfortunately abby's other friend harlan gets infected but this does lead to abby eventually discovering the cure for the disease or at least something to hold it back uh, meanwhile we really get to Speaking of Woodrow earlier, we really get to uh, kind of get a bit of an idea of what his arc is, where he's coming from, what his drive is, because we know that we know after this episode that something is wrong with his wife. Like she must have some kind of like degenerative brain disease or something where she has to take pills and she keeps forgetting. And he's talking about her having episodes, so something is wrong with her and his whole. Uh, 
his whole ambition, his objective is to, from what it seems like, use the secrets here and the funding that he's getting from Sunderland to find a cure for his wife. So I'm interested to see where that goes and how that influences his arc over the season. But uh, speaking of Sunderland, we also found out he's broke. Avery is a broke man who we find out has been living off of essentially the uh, rich... I would say not necessarily trust fund but just all the family money from his wife and she eventually cuts him off after the haunting of her daughter Shauna like kind of plants the idea in her head that he's only with her for her money so I think that's really interesting I'm still not sure what the end goal is for the uh, for Shauna's specter haunting Maria and the whole house I still get major grudge vibes and I don't like that so uh, I guess it's doing its job being unsettling but they kind of have a mini you know falling out an argument and we see Avery really kind of pushed to the brink here um, he's actually uh, confronted by the banker who has been kind of silently like giving him money giving him loans and when he confronts him telling him you know I'm out I don't want to do this anymore um, he mentioned something called the conclave and i don't know what that is yet and i'm sure that we're going to get more information on it but that really shakes avery and his whole journey in the episode has been really really good uh the actor who plays him is fantastic i think it's will Patton. um i think that's his name but he is phenomenal and you see just how far this pushes him when he kills the banker with a freaking golf uh freaking golf club in his uh in his bathtub you know to clean up everything so you can kind of get this idea that it's not like the first time he's done this because he's like very efficient at it so um i'm interested to see where that goes as well uh but speaking to the uh the title of the episode he speaks we do get swampy's first words and it is leave her so i um I thought that was really interesting. Eventually, uh, Abby is confronted by the, the I'm going to call him the Maggot Man. Do you know the Maggot Man? Um, the Maggot Man? So, uh, before that gets too, uh, I get too deep in that, um, Swampy shows up, and it's really interesting because he uh, basically tells whatever this unseen force is to release him to release the guy that he killed the murderer that he killed and uh it does seem the you know the mags disperse from him and everything but i am getting major vibes that this might be the rot and that the rot is going to end up being the uh the big bad for the season it isn't just going to be avery it isn't just going to be jason woodrue it's going to be the rot and the rot is essentially the opposite of the green where green the green represents life represents plant life the rot represents death uh, the rot is also called the black sometimes and it is just this force that just uh, is completely focused on killing everything so i'm interested to see if maybe jason woodrow ends up becoming the avatar for the rot later on and becomes a floronic man or not but uh yeah so we'll see we'll see if this does end up being the rot i i would say it's a pretty pretty good uh chance that it might be uh, we also found out, as I mentioned earlier, that this disease doesn't seem to be as um, malevolent as we initially thought. It 
as Abby puts it, the disease isn't fighting, it's fighting back. So it is reacting to outside sources, and that's why it is so vicious, because it's essentially defending itself. And so when Abby is able to get into back into the hospital, she is able to come up with a concoction to not just slow down uh, Harlan's disease, but almost, you know, get into the first stages of curing him and so they start bringing that through the uh through the hospital treating people so now we have a treatment which is great we don't have an outright uh cure for it yet but we're getting there so that's really interesting and it also kind of speaks to the green kind of reacting to possibly the rot but the most interesting thing that i thought we got out of this episode besides um the reveal of Abby finally realizing that Swamp Thing is Alec Holland and then kind of reuniting, which I thought was really sweet, really, really well done. And I'm interested to see where they go through the, throughout the rest of the season with this because they got into it really quickly, quicker than I thought it was going to be. But the big takeaway for me was the uh, Madame Xanadu and Dan Cassidy scene. We got a little bit of Dan Cassidy last episode, but he was much more... Um, kind of relaxed bro and now he seems focused he seems tortured he's the the scene recontextualizes both of those characters because we've seen madame xanadu kind of be this you know crazy witch doctor lady but now here she actually seems like a prophet she seems like someone who is kind of on the up and up on what thing what's going on not just with uh all the disease going on but with all the kind of uh dark magicy magicy stuff that might be happening in the swamp and in moray and it seems like now from what he was talking about dan seems to be trapped in moray like it doesn't seem like he can leave because just from what he was talking about the way that he was uh kind of articulating things it seems like he's been there for a while and he can't leave and so he has her read his cards to him and it's the same cards you can tell that they've done this before and they've known each other for some time but xanadu reveals that the cards are now flipped so his uh his fate may have changed and so he gets it in his head that abby might be the key to changing his fate and we talked about it a little bit in the full Swamp Thing episode that we did. If you haven't checked that out, check it out. It's great. Um, but Dan Cassidy in the comics is the superhero Blue Devil. So we did see in the trailer a hint at Dan possibly becoming Blue Devil, or maybe he already is. But I'm really interested to see how he factors into and how Madame Xanadu factors into the story. We know now that, uh, at least through rumors and speculation, that the series, that Swamp Thing was supposed to go for three seasons and then kind of spin off into a Defender-style uh, Justice League Dark, which would probably feature Madame Xanadu and Blue Devil. But I uh, I don't know where they kind of fit in this story because it seems very focused with, you know, this idea of Abby and Swamp Thing are on a collision course with uh, Avery, Jason Woodrue, and possibly now The Rot. But throwing in uh, Blue Devil and Madame Xanadu, I think, is going to add something that I'm not sure where it fits. So I'm, I'm excited to see where it fits, but we will see where that goes. So that is it for this week's weekly review. Let me know what you thought of this week's episode. Uh, let me know what you've been thinking of Swamp Thing so far. Uh, I want to give a shout out to a good friend of mine, Andrew, who recently uh, jumped onto the DC Universe app. Um, 
And I, you know, I keep saying it every week, but this this app, the streaming service, whatever you want to call it, uh, it's great. It really is. I was really um, hesitant before getting it because I didn't want to jump into something that, like, you know, might not be uh, what you know worth the value but with the comics library that they have alone there they're adding new comics all the time it is absolutely worth your time and especially now that the original uh shows have been so good titans excluded for me but all of the shows so far have been really great watch get this app get the streaming service for nothing else for the comics library for doom patrol and since young justice as we talked about is coming back in july you want to be on there for this because the second half is going to be even bigger so uh yeah let me know what you think of the dc universe streaming service if you haven't jumped on yet why um they're doing you know like week-long free trials all the time so it's definitely worth the time to go in and just binge young justice binge doom patrol and uh at least watch the first couple episodes of swamp thing because it's definitely worth it and uh yeah so tune in back next week for the next episode which is called the darkness on the edge of town i love how ominous that title is and so we'll see how that goes but for now let's jump on over to this week's comics countdown Welcome back to this week's Comics Countdown. This is the segment of our show where I talk about the comics that I think you should be picking up, whether it's at your local comic book store, on Comixology, or however you get your comics. These are the ones that I think you should be checking out. We'll be talking about each book's title, the creative team behind it, as well as a brief synopsis of each book. And of course, each synopsis will be accompanied by my synopsis voices. If you have a synopsis voice that you would like to request, feel free to do so on any of our social media or through email. We've got one, two, three, four, five books for you this week. And uh, there's, some, there's some pretty good ones, pretty good ones, I would say, that are out there right now. Uh, we'll go ahead and jump into it, starting off with... With Nightwing number 61, written by Dan Jurgens, with art by Chris Mooneyham. Uh, this book has been uh, divisive, to say the least. I think outside of anything uh, Tom King, that Tom King is specifically writing, uh, the Nightwing Rick Grayson arc might be the most divisive among people in the DC Comics community. And uh, it's tough. It's tough sometimes to defend something that's so radically different. I like how different the story is. I kind of wish it was uh, our Dick Grayson in the shoes of Rick here, uh, helping to train these new Nightwings against these completely unfamiliar threats. But, you know, this, uh, this whole thing might not even matter when Batman Superman comes out by uh, Joshua Williamson and Dave Marquez. Uh... I actually think that Nightwing is probably going to end up being one of the people who have been corrupted or replaced or however we're going to be seeing that story. But that's that story. For this story here, um, it's it's been interesting. I might drop this book once this arc is done just because it doesn't feel like it's really going anywhere. Um, or at least not towards you know the whole... Uh, towards a conclusion for the Rick Grayson arc. So, uh, either way, we'll jump into the synopsis here. Bloodhaven is burning. 
Rick Grayson and the Nightwings are helpless against the rampage of Burnback. Will they be able to pull themselves together as a team in order to prevent Bloodhaven from becoming Ash? Confronted with their most dire threat yet, Rick and the Nightwings must find a way to come together if lives are to be saved. So Rick and the Nightwings sounds like a really bad uh, 80s hair metal band. But uh, yeah, I, I like the team. I like the team outside of Rick, to be honest. I like the team more than I like Rick. Uh, and as a huge Dick Grayson fan, I, it almost feels blasphemous to say. But uh, yeah, I really, really hope that this book either starts to head towards the end of the Rick Grayson arc or we get something to keep me reading this because if not, I might end up dropping this after the, uh, after the conclusion of this arc. Next up, we have Captain America number 11, written by Ta-Nehisi Coates, with art by Adam Kubert. This book, on the other hand, has been really, really good. Uh, a lot of people find Ta-Nehisi Coates' writing to be a slow burn. Uh, he's gotten, I would say, comparisons to Jonathan Hickman in that way, but now Hickman's coming back and is going to be taking control of the X-Men. So I think, you know, there are worse people to have comparisons drawn to. But uh, we'll jump into the synopsis here. Captain of Nothing continues. Hunted Aftermath. Manhunt. But who is doing the hunting? The law enforcement apparatus of the world or Captain America himself? So yeah, with the uh, Daughters of Liberty and them basically working to break Cap out of prison, um, this is, I think, the right way to go with him. Uh, with all the stuff that's going on where we're now kind of looking towards the future of Captain America in the movies, looking at Sam Wilson, Bucky Barnes, um, I think it's really uh, interesting seeing how the comics, at least Marvel nowadays, has been really kind of, I would say, almost dependent on the stuff that happens in the movies. Like, they sometimes tailor their events and their... Uh, character returns and stuff like that around the events of the movies and now that steve rogers has effectively retired in the mcu i'm interested to see what they decide to do with uh cap in the comics so we'll see where they go from here i think the story has been really interesting so far though i will say i think it is probably going to be a better read altogether in a trade much like you know ta-nehisi coates's writing just in general but Either way, been a solid book so far. You should definitely pick this up. Another book I think you should definitely pick up is Miles Morales Spider-Man number seven, written by Saladin Ahmed with art by Aletha Martinez and Patrick O'Keefe on a cover that looks just amazing. If you don't know that name, Patrick O'Keefe did the, uh, he was basically the art director behind Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. And you can immediately tell when you look at this cover because it's so reminiscent of the art in that film that i would recommend just picking this up even if you haven't been reading the book just for the cover alone because it is gorgeous so uh this book has been really really good so far i've been really enjoying it i love miles's uh, perspective on things and i love saladin ahmed's voice for miles and now that the Marvel Universe is going to be going through a lot of shakeups. I'm really interested to see where he ends up landing. So we'll jump into the synopsis here. 
After the dramatic conclusion of the first arc, Miles has to take stock in his life. What do his parents think of all this? How do his friends, particularly Bombshell, react to what's happened? All this, a surprise return, and a cover by the art director of Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, Patrick O'Keefe. So yeah, it's just, the book has been great so far. I really enjoyed it, especially if you like smaller, more personal stories. Uh, more ground level because we see all the time with uh, Peter Parker's adventures it ends up being a little bit more bombastic a little bit more uh, globe trotting and I sometimes I really like having smaller more personal more street level comics to kind of balance that out that's what Nightwing you know typically is for me but this book I think has filled that void really nicely and Miles Morales is just an incredible character so definitely pick this up Next up, it's Batman number 73, written by Tom King with art by Mikhail Janine. Uh, this book, I, there are no words to describe um, how, just how polarizing Tom King's Batman has been and continues to be. People love it, people hate it, people can't wait for it to be over, people want it to continue on forever. So it's, um, I think as we're heading towards the final act in Tom King's Batman, um, the art has been amazing, the writing has been stellar, uh, this past issue saw Bane break Batman again, so this issue, from what it looks like on the cover, we're finally gonna get some face-to-face -face between Bruce and Thomas, uh, the Waynes, the Bat Waynes, if you will, and I'm really interested to see what their uh, their dialogue ends up being and how they either get up on the same page or have some kind of big confrontation. So let's jump into the synopsis here. The Fall and the Fallen, Part 4. Batman has been defeated by Bane's minions and chased out of Gotham. As a last-ditch effort to save his son from the lonely fate of being Batman, his father from another universe, Thomas Wayne, a.k.a. the Flashpoint Batman, is taking Bruce to the far ends of the Earth to try to give him the one thing that will cause him to give up crime-fighting for good. So yeah, I um, I still think it's really weird that Thomas Wayne is part of this. I don't really think we've been given a good enough reason for him to be part of this, uh, part of Baden's plans and everything. So hopefully this issue goes a long way to remedy that. Uh, City of Bane does officially start in two issues in Batman number 75. So we've got this issue and then the next issue to kind of set up uh, the lead into that arc. But I would definitely pick this up if for nothing else and have the conversations between those two characters. And finally, the big book for this week, the book I think is the must-buy of the week, if not the month of June, is Superman Year One, number one of three, written by Frank Miller with art by John Romita Jr. Uh, this is it. This is the big origin story for Superman that we haven't gotten yet. Um... 
I am cautiously optimistic about this book. I'm really nervous, guys. I'm really nervous, guys and gals. I really want this to be good, but I have not been impressed with anything from Frank Miller in the last few years, and I really want this to be the exception because his Batman Year One is one of the best Batman stories ever, and I know that he's going to be swinging for the fences in this story. I hope that it's good. I really want it to be good. And uh, I love John Romita Jr.'s art. The last time he was on Superman was uh, during his during the run with Jeff Johns. So I love that arc. I love when John Romita Jr. draws Superman. I, I love his art regardless, but I love when he draws Superman because he has such a different take on his proportions, his, uh, his personality, his quirks. So I'm really interested to see what they do with this here. Again, Nervous, cautiously optimistic, I really want this to be good. Let's jump into the synopsis here. From the burning world of Krypton to the bucolic fields of Kansas, the first chapter of Superman Year One tracks Clark Kent's youth in Kansas as he comes to terms with his strange powers and struggles to find his place in our world. DC Black Label is proud to present the definitive origin of Superman, as rendered by the legendary comics creators Frank Miller and John Romita Jr. So yeah, I uh, I really want this to be good. <laughs> um, the Black Label books, I think, have uh, been really hit or miss in quality. Um, especially if you kind of also take into account like the retroactive ones like uh batman white knight i thought was fantastic uh batman damned really just became the batman dick book uh so i really want this to be good um i if nothing else i want this to be good because i want more superman stories i feel like black label has been pretty much just completely overrun by uh batman stories and that's fine like batman has like a deep uh character roster and a deep uh history of stories to draw from but he's not the only dc comics character and i want more stories more mature reader stories that deal with other characters besides the dark knight and if this book does well i think we're gonna see more of that so definitely pick this book up this is the must get for this week uh to recap all the books we have nightwing number 61 captain america number 11 miles morales number seven batman number 73 and superman year one number one of three and that is gonna do it for this week's episode and this week's comics countdown let me know if you uh are reading anything that you think I should check out. If I missed anything on this list, please feel free to let me know. I love finding new comics. I love being introduced to new comics. And I am always on the hunt for more good stuff to read. And let me know what you thought of Jessica Jones Season 3. If you've watched it yet, if you haven't watched it, if you haven't watched it, the spoiler review is probably really bad for you. But um, definitely let me know what you thought. I am going to uh, let you guys and gals know that next week we will be doing a full-on retrospective on the entire Netflix Defenders series. Uh, I'm going to be ranking every single season of every single show, so definitely look forward to that. I don't know exactly where Jessica Jones Season 3 fits on there just yet. 
Um, I'm compiling that list right now, but I will definitely... Uh, it's it's definitely going to place somewhere in there for sure. Uh, let me know what you thought of uh, the season of Jessica Jones. Let me know what you thought of the last uh, few seasons from uh, Netflix Defenders. We may never see these characters again, at least not in this uh, version, which I think would be a complete shame because Jessica Jones, uh, Punisher, and Matt Murdock, Daredevil, those three are the best castings for Marvel Comics, I think, out of possibly all of them. It's it's arguable when we, you know, uh, account for, like, Robert Downey Jr., Chris Evans, those guys. But I think on a personal level, on a, not just a TV level, but just, like, in Marvel Comics live action, I think those three specifically really shine in their roles. And I don't see anyone who could possibly play them better. But... That is going to be all next week. We're going to be talking about The Defenders. We're going to be talking about every single show that was part and was under that umbrella and how much I'm going to miss this corner of the Marvel sort of cinematic universe. And uh, look forward to that. Same geek time, same geek channel. But for now, for Geek Explain, this is Eric Azana. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you next time. Mm-hmm.